What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Control Yourself Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. Visit FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com and there you will learn about all of the functional range systems, including functional range conditioning, functional range assessment, functional range release, and kin stretch, which are all evidence-based systems looking to optimize human performance and human health. It is also brought to you by westside-barbell.com. Visit westside-barbell.com. Use the promo code DRE10, D-R-E, and then the number 10 at checkout, and you'll receive 10% off your purchase of educational material uh, and clothing and gear. If you do not know who Westside Barbell is, I highly recommend that you go check them out. They have been an industry leader in the topics of strength and conditioning and powerlifting for many, many years. So please visit both functionalanatomyseminars.com and westside-barbell.com. In today's episode uh, entitled The Evolution of Eating, I sit down with the two-time New York Times best-selling author Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and is the author of The Paleo Solution, as well as Wired to Eat. He also has a new book out uh, called The uh, Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat. Um, The conversation broadly focuses on um, an evolutionary perspective of human nutrition. Um, We talk about various topics, including uh, a contrast between physical evolution versus chemical or nutritional evolution in Homo sapiens. We discuss Michio Kaku's caveman principle and how it applies to the understanding of human dietary needs. We talk about the natural selective uh, pressures that were uh, forging the human genome during the, the development of sapiens. We talk about uh, consciousness and the challenges it provides uh, to maintaining healthy eating habits. Associated with that, we get into a topic on the hedonic treadmill. Um, and we also discuss why the human body is, from an evolutionary perspective, actually wired to move less and eat more, uh, contrasting um, the most common nutritional and exercise advice, which uh, tells you to eat less and move more. We talk about intermittent fasting, the importance of personalized nutrition. That's a big topic. We dispel a lot of the myths that people might have about someone who wrote a book on called you know, the paleo diet. Um, when you hear the conversation, you actually realize that Rob's approach is very nuanced, very clinical, very evidence-based, and, and he takes an individualized approach uh, to the, the programming um, of human eating with his clients. Uh, we talk about the concept of biohacking, the, the reserve capacity hypothesis. Um, we also really dispel a lot of the myths surrounding the uh, paleolithic eating as well as uh, plant versus meat-based diets and the research that's, that's uh, surrounding those topics. We talk about human longevity and the research on telomeres and telomerase and, and whether or not human longevity uh, is attainable or if we're on the right track. Um, a lot of topics here. Uh, I hope you and guys enjoy this uh, episode as much as I did. So without further delay, I bring you Mr. Rob Wolf. And we're live. 
right. I am here with the, the, the famous Rob Wolf, who we were just discussing for whatever reason, uh, funny how life is, we have never actually met. And the Venn diagrams, like we said, uh, pretty much overlap to a crazy degree. So yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. an honor to chat with you. Yeah, me as well. I was just, I was just talking to, to way before we started, and I was telling Rob how I was taking notes as to what I think we should be talking about. And I was also doing some research as to what I think we should be talking about. And then I realized that this is a full-time job because there's so, many, there's so many things that we could discuss, uh, which most likely means that hopefully, if we get along, of course, we can, we can do this again. I might get Absolutely. along with you in theory, but not in person. You never know. Right, right, right. Totally. But we'll try it. So for you, for people who don't know who Rob is, I mean, I don't know who, if you were under a rock possibly, but uh, Rob is a, a former research biochemist. If I'm incorrect in all any of these things, let me know. Uh, I just make all this up anyway, so yeah, whatever absolutely. you say is probably accurate. So Most people yeah. just fast forward the beginning of this shit anyway, right? Nobody cares about <laughs> right. But uh, you were formerly a research biochemist, which I'd like to get into. Uh, you were also a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism. And to, to my excitement, I saw that you were also um, a review editor for the Journal of Evolutionary Health. Mm -hmm. I think is going to take up the large majority of this conversation. Uh, Great. If I'm if I if I if I'm correct. Uh, other than that, you're a two-time New York Times best-selling author, which is badass. That's a that's a that's an incredible uh, thing to be able to say. And of course, the first book was the Paleo Solution, which mm -hmm. I think was the 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 thing that kind of exploded. Launched it all. Yeah. yeah. And then Wired to Eat, which conceivably, in my opinion, is even more interesting uh, of a concept. And now recently, I saw that you have this uh, sacred cow, the case for better meat, which as I understand is from your podcast. It's a compilation. Is that correct? It's not a compilation. A, a good friend of mine and I, Diana Rogers, we worked on this book in, in film also for close to six years total. And it's the uh, uh, health, environmental and ethical considerations of a meat inclusive food system. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's what uh, other than that, I, I know you're into jujitsu, so we can go that way. You, you powerlifting, uh, there, there's quite a, and you have some little ones, right? You have a couple yep. little ones, which yep. is the most important. I should have started with that. Um, but other than that, you know what? Maybe you can give us a potted version of who Rob Wolf is, other than what I just said, and how we got here, and what are you, what are you into at the moment? Yeah, sure. So, it, you know, I uh, have always been interested in health and performance, uh, uh, dabbled in powerlifting and martial arts throughout my life. And uh, in my mid-20s, I became pretty sick. I had ulcerative colitis so bad that I was facing a bowel reception. And I was doing research at the Fred Hutch uh, Cancer Research Center at the time. I was trying to figure out, was I going to go kind of an academic track? Was I going to go more of a med school track? So I knew enough about kind of the, the long-term outcomes related to ulcerative colitis that it was terrible. Like that's not, not the way that you want to live. And it was interesting right around that time, my mom called me and she had had just this long standing health issues, gut issues. And what we discovered were interrelated autoimmune issues. Her rheumatologist ran a series of tests on her and he was like, you were reactive to everything, grains, legumes, dairy, and he had this long list of stuff. And we were able to get a modicum of success with her with dietary compliance, which kind of kept her in the fight, I, I think a good bit longer than what she otherwise would have been. But when I looked at what she said and, and kind of what she was experiencing and looked at what I was experiencing, I'm like, man, this seems really 
similar. And mm -hmm. so I was thinking about what she had related to me. I'm like, no grains, no legumes, no dairy. And I'm like, what a, one, what on earth do you eat if you don't eat that? You know, I was just, I just befuddled by that. But I was thinking about, it. I'm like, okay, grains and legumes, like those are kind of agriculture. What did we eat before agriculture? And mind you, this was in 1998. And so I, ha I had heard of this concept of like a Paleolithic diet, some sort of an ancestral diet. So I went into my house, turned on my computer, waited for it to, you know, the squirrels to, to spin it over and everything, and then, turn, you know, waited for the, the dial-up to work. And in this new search engine, Google, I put into it, Paleolithic Diet. And I found some work by two main people, Arthur Devaney, who's a professor emeritus of economics, and then Professor Lauren Cordain. And Cordain's work in particular was really interesting. He had just published this paper, Serial uh, Grains, Humanities, Double-Edged Sword. And he made this case that we wouldn't have civilization without the, the advent of agriculture, but it may have come at some cost, that there may have been some evolutionary trade-offs associated with it. And a ton of what he talked about were GI-related issues and also autoimmune-related issues. So it was kind of like, man, I, I, I was sick, so I'm about 165 pounds, 170 pounds right now. My low ebb with the ulcerative colitis, I got down to about 130 pounds, so just malabsorption, like nothing would digest, everything came out the same way it went in. So I was like, man, I've got nothing to lose. I really don't want a bowel resection. So I tried this kind of lowish carb paleo type diet and it just changed everything. Like it, it, it was incredible. And I, I've always been kind of a geek. I don't get out a lot. And I've always been kind of fascinated with evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology. And when I started really thinking about that and the notion of doing standard medical school, that I just couldn't, you know, consolidate those two things. I was going to spend all of this time basically dealing with either either emergency medicine, which is cool, but not really the, the thing that lights my fire, or the, the really poor approach to dealing with chronic degenerative disease, which has all these multifactorial elements that go into it. And we're still in this kind of like one pill for a, a solution paradigm, which I, I just don't think is really ever going to work all that well. So I was casting around for what to do. And as, as luck would have it, I was poking around on the internet and I found this wacky workout online called CrossFit. And my, my friend, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, he and I started doing this uh, workout in his garage. And before we knew it, we had like 15 or 20 people working out with us. And we reached out to the, uh, the Glassman's said, hey, we really like this stuff. Um, we'd like to open a gym and call it CrossFit. And that ended up being CrossFit North, which was the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. And then I had a chance to move from Seattle back down to Chico, California, where I did my undergrad. And I opened uh, NorCal Strength and Conditioning CrossFit NorCal, which was the fourth affiliate in the world. And I worked for HQ for a number of years. We had a pretty good falling out at, at, at you know, some, some point down the road, but that was really kind of where I, I, I launched into all this stuff. And that it, it was really cool in that I had an opportunity to work with just a ton of people and see what did and didn't work within this, this kind of ancestral health template. And uh, I, I did a little bit of work with more kind of the elite athlete scene, but it, it was cool, but I felt like I was more of a speed bump to the, you know, it, my job as a, as a coach for them was more as a speed bump. I had to slow them down and stop them from killing themselves, you know, to, to get them ready for show day versus uh, working with type two diabetics, people with autoimmune or gut related issues. 
I really felt like that work could could literally save their lives. So that really ended up being kind of the the area that I've focused in. Man, it's 22 years later since I, I first kind of embarked on that whole process. And I guess more more recently, some very good friends of ours who used to be trainers of, of, of at NorCal Strength and Conditioning, they went on to found their own uh, gym basis, uh, health and performance, Sarah and Grace and Strange, they're the folks that put the whole FRC concept onto my radar. And that has has been one of the most profound life altering events. Like I, I started meditating two years ago, that was really huge. And then I would, I would put, you know, if I were to look on my deathbed at like some real critical benchmarks of things that happen in my life, FRC is gonna be one of those things that just, I, I can't even figure out how I got along without it previously. So that, that, that's kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of, of the last 22 years, I guess. First off, I, I'm very humbled by what you say. Obviously, whenever, when anybody tells you that whatever you, you know, thought you had helped someone, it's, I can't, I, I'm sure other people experience it as well, but it's something every time you hear it. So I thank you for that. But there's, I mean, first off, if anybody's listening, and I'm hoping that someone is listening, um, you can tell Rob does podcasts because when I ask for a potted version of someone's history, that's exactly what you should get, right? Like, <laughs> I don't mean just say, yeah, I'm Rob. I mean, give me, uh, you know, give me some, some stretch and, and yeah. So getting back to your podcast, the healthy rebellion radio, I want to get that yeah. out before I, uh, just, just the way you speak would, would, would probably send people that way. So you said a bunch of things that I find incredibly inter uh, interesting and, it's funny in your book, I was, I was looking at some of the reviews and funny enough for the paleo diet one, uh, one of the reviews was the sciencey part was too much. And I love fucking hearing that. Like I, I love the, the idea that the body should be as easy as everyone wants it to be. Um, and I always say that the body is far more complex than, than everyone really wants it to be. Um, so the only thing that I am interested really is, is diving into that sciencey part. Sure. And I think with nutrition, more than anything else, like I always say about my profession, my profession being like manual therapy and, and training and load management, which is the mm -hmm. way I look at it. Um, I mean, there's so many different opinions. There's so many different ways to look at it. And I always say that with nutrition, it's that times 10. And everyone seems to have this personal story um, that, that guides them in one direction. And that's where it ends a lot of the time. So uh, I think the best thing that we can do is, so you had an N equals one experience, which was tremendous. And you found out that works. Now, a lot of people would discount that saying, who gives a shit about any N, N equals one, but that's not the way I look at research, right? I look at research uh, in a way where if you're not taking a bird's eye view of, let's say the last five to 600 years of the scientific revolution, you're going to get a very bizarre understanding of what we know and what we don't mm -hmm. know. Right. And it's very easy in, in nutrition to say, well, Rob Wolf felt better doing this, but I'm a, I'm a vegan and I feel better doing this. And I think that's the point. Right. And I want to get something, a, a concept out and then you can fire off, but there's something called the caveman theory uh, by Michio Kaku. I don't know if you've ever read Michio Kaku's work. I don't think so, no. no. Theoretical physicist and cosmologist. It's not related, so I don't know why. Okay. So what he says with the caveman principle is pretty much, um, if you take a, a, a hunter-gatherer or a caveman from a, about 100 to 200,000 years ago, 
and you give him a shave and put him in a three-piece suit and drop mm. him in the middle of Wall Street. I have heard of this, yeah. No one would really yet fucking see the difference, right? right? So what I do with my um, approach to the body is I say, okay, so at some point, the human genome was forged. Whatever we can call the human genome, at whatever point we can call it that. I believe the in the evolutionary record, we're about 100 to 200,000 years old as a species, if you really want to nail it down. Um, and what happened again with the advent of civilization, with the advent of consciousness, is that we started to, you know, amalgamate things. We started to group things together. So we started, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, to live in a way that we had to adapt to because that wasn't what was being done when our genome was forged. Right. So from a physical standpoint, I always say if we look back to what forged the genome and what type of species we were when the genome was formed which is hunter-gatherer. There's no argument to that. Um, the machinery hasn't changed, okay? So, the, you know, it's still the same type of machinery. We're still doing the same types of things. So if you want to know how to keep an articulation healthy, then the answer would be to find out how it was forged and what our genome expects of us, okay? So let's just start with that. Now, for physical evolution, I have the argument that consciousness made it that a lot of the natural selective pressures have been eliminated, right? Like you go to the grocery store and it's not a matter of, I have to kill a rabbit. It's a matter of what flavor of fucking chocolate bar do I have to choose from? Right. And there's like 1700 of them. And then there's this dichotomy that I am a conscious being and the consciousness of me is what's fucking this up because there's too many choices. I'm going to get to my question in a second, Rob. So my, my, then I, I think to myself, well, what about nutritional evolution? What about chemical evolution? And I have the, this notion that I don't think that chemical evolution was halted as quickly as physical evolution. Do, do you have anything to say? So in other words, chemical evolution seems to keep going on. My wife, for example, can't eat dairy, right? She doesn't have the, the enzyme lactase or whatever to, to process this food. And I do, and I'm quite happy eating it. And she can't. So there's something about the ongoing evolution of chemistry, which makes it different between you and me am i am i right with nutrition is this something you agree with yeah yeah i i do and it's it's interesting uh richard Wrangham, who's a professor of evolutionary biology at harvard he wrote a book catching fire mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting that um human technology has actually influenced the evolutionary process like you would make the case that our ability to process food to some degree, and that's just stone tools and being able to butcher an animal, that opens up a really different world for us being able to consume foods or uh, uh, making fire and being able to cook foods. And so it's that expensive tissue hypothesis that the ability to both select for very nutrient dense foods and then also make them more digestible, our guts tended to shrink relative to previous iterations of humanity. And our brains grew and and there's there's pushback about whether or not that's a 100 percent airtight case but it, it's interesting that you have the the very existence of intelligence now is arguably influencing uh, evolution there's a really I, I think interesting example of this the uh the swidden cultures within africa when they started doing the slash and burn uh, uh, uh process of clearing land and then planting crops, what it did is it opened up this huge reservoir for mosquitoes that had been a vector in 
humanity's existence forever, but it just dramatically expanded the, the number of these, these critters that people were living around. And people started living in kind of grass huts in proximity to these critters and the, the mosquitoes carry malaria. And this malaria was so damaging to people that there was one of the fastest, most profound genetic adaptations in history, which is the development of sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. And folks that are, are heterozygous with sickle cell anemia, they've got a little bit of sickling of the red blood cells and that prevents the, the malaria, you know, yes. the, from, from getting set up in there. People who get uh, homozygous uh, 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 genes, they die typically in, in their youth. So there's like, there's a one, a 25% fatality rate with this disease, but it was, it was a sufficient evolutionary win that it became one of the fastest, most, most rapid, uh, uh, you know, genetic alterations that we've ever seen in, in human history. And it, because the, the uh, infectious disease impact of, of malaria was so profound, and now, interestingly, folks who live in the United States and Canada, Europe, who are, have that sickle cell anemia characteristics, that, that trait is disappearing at a very rapid rate because there's no longer that selection pressure kind of pushing for it. So I think that, you know, at a genetic level, things can change really rapidly. And then some of what's going on too is this epigenetic change. Mm -hmm. So we don't even need to change the genes per se but just how they're, they're turned on or off. And I think back to your point around like the, the lactase persistence and whatnot, sometimes that's just whether or not a gene gets methylated or not methylated and, and leaves it either in the on or off function. And that is where it's almost kind of, in my mind, like this pseudo Lamarckian genetics where like you can have more, more uh, uh, fine tuning in the, in the, the more immediate state you don't need to actually change genetic codes to be able to get this really profound change because we're just altering the way that these things get turned on and off. And so uh, I think that it really changes that picture of what evolution looks like for human beings and, and it actually throwing a rock into kind of this classic paleo diet kind of perspective. It also makes the case that depending on what the circumstances are, we don't, it, it, uh, a big foundation of say like what Lauren Cordain said to support the, the paleo diet is that our genes are largely the same as what our hunter-gatherer ancestors were. That's true and there's probably some lessons to take from that. But then when we look at epigenetic changes, when we look at gut microbiome changes, which also alter the genes and alter the, the epigenetics, then we have these other factors that can really, uh, you know, uh, play into different dietary situations. You know, some people thriving on a particular diet while other people might struggle with it. But those, those aren't even at the genetic level, they're more at the epigenetic level. That's brilliant. So again, for people listening, and it goes back to the thing I was saying before about that book, The Paleo Diet, and some of the concerns people had where, you know, I didn't like the science chapters. And, and you're speaking to that point because when you don't like the science chapters and you go ahead and read the review, or you read the the back, you know, about the, the uh, you get the idea of the book, but you lack specifics. Mm -hmm. So for the paleo diet, I've heard many uh, a stone thrown uh, based on that premise that, you know, the paleolithic diet, you want to eat like our ancestors ate, but which ancestors are you referring mm -hmm. to in which area of the world? And people think they actually got you with that argument. And I'm, I'm amazed at the lack of, of follow up of thought, which is to say that 
I, I don't, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe we'll get, I don't think you're saying everyone needs to eat paleo. I think that the point is, is that there's something about the understanding of what the hell our species is, mm -hmm. which should be the starting point to decide what the hell we should do, right? Yeah. I always say, like, if you go to, let's say you, you have a dog, you go to a veterinarian and your dog goes, you know what? I don't fucking like dogs. You know what I mean? I like cats. And I like, you know, I like, uh, I like gerbils. I don't know why I picked gerbils. It's weird, but I like, you know, wolf, I like wolves. I like I, I, whatever. I, I just don't like dogs. And you, you can't, you can't do that, right? It's not like you can go. So I'm just going to take your dog and do a whole bunch of cat stuff. Because if you do a bunch of cat stuff with a dog, you end up fucking the dog. That's the right. You know what I'm saying? So it's an understanding of the human. So if I get this correct, you're saying that a retreat back to Paleolithic concepts in addition to a very specific tailored assessment of the homo sapien in front of you equals a, a, a good shot at, at making a difference. Yeah, you know, if, if we're throwing darts at a dartboard, I feel like it's getting you kind of close to the center and, and, you know, compared to eat everything in moderation, no mm. extremes. And in our modern food world, what does that even mean? Like what, like, yeah. When, when you walk down an aisle and it's like Pop-Tarts on one side and corn chips on the other and these things have Eat been- both, Eat both, Eat both. <laughs> and, and, and then you, you do pull a little bit out of say like the evolutionary biology, like the, uh, the optimum foraging strategy, which all organisms follow. Try to get as much nutrition and calories as possible doing as little as possible. And if that foundation is true, then it really calls into question whether or not we can self-monitor, like no organism needs to self-monitor and there, there are satiety cues and different things like that that help all organisms to kind of manage their, their nutrition and their food intake. But ignoring all that then just leaves us literally uh, defenseless against the modern food environment. So yeah, and I, I have to say, you know, early in this scene, um, I was definitely on Mount Stupid of the Dunning-Kruger, you know, uh, curve, like I, I definitely had much more of of a, uh, a myopic view. It was kind of like looking at the world through a straw instead of getting a little bit broader of a picture. But I gotta say, on an outcome base, you know, deal, when you have somebody that wanders into your gym and they say, "Well, I, I can't go on a, a walk outside. It's 105 degrees. We had a gal that, that started training with us. Hot day in Chico. She's got long sleeve shirt, gloves, and a hat on." And I'm like, what's going on? And she said, I have this condition called porphyria, porphyria cutanea tarda. I'm like, is that contagious? And she's like, no, 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 it's a genetic disease. And whenever I hear genetic disease, like I would immediately go look into either um, some, some uh, autoimmune type issues or some metabolic issues like insulin resistance. And what I found is that there was some really high linkage with autoimmune underpinnings to this porphyria uh, condition, which is basically when you, you get exposed to sunlight, you don't just get a sunburn, it can burn you all the way down to the periosteum of the bone. Like it is horrible stuff. And this gal was in her 60s, she developed this in her 20s, and she literally had not been out in the sun for, for ages. And so I said, hey, why don't we cut out grains, legumes, and dairy for 30 days and see how you do? I think it might help this stuff. She did it, it worked. And again, this is N equals one. 
but it, it, we uh, we eventually got some folks in the Porphyria community to run a, a pilot study on this, and they got some very favorable results. So, it, you know, even though I think that my my view was very myopic in the beginning, we got some really good results, you know, and that was part of, and, and that can that can create some uh, survivor bias too, where you know the people that I was working with were. I, I word started getting out that like, hey, if you have some funky gut issues and stuff like that, then it, you know, uh, uh, I started attracting people that direction. The flip side of that is as I started working with folks that were doing this really high motor CrossFit type stuff and MMA, I would try to do a low carb diet with those people and it would destroy them. It would absolutely tank them. And that took uh, a lot of rejiggering of my worldview to figure out, okay, this person's not sick. They're not experiencing autoimmune, you know, issues. They're not insulin resistant. So a whole food based appropriate protein balanced carb fat ratio is probably a really good idea for this high motor, you know, athlete, but that was probably a five year evolution for me to, to get to that spot because I'd had so much success with helping people to lose weight and, and reverse these kind of systemic inflammatory conditions. But you know what? It's 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 an it's it's the idea of research where I, I talk about this a lot on my podcast because it keeps coming back. It's the idea of people I think not understanding what research is and what the purpose of the research is, right? Like you don't. It, it's not like you you research and then get an idea. You get an idea and then you research it. Yes. If you follow Karl Popper, like if you follow the historians of science, we keep falling into the same thing, and it happens in my profession where. You know, I say something, someone comes out and throws one jab at one little part of something that I say without thinking about it in terms of the entire system. And all of a sudden that guy's put in the slot of, oh, forget that guy, don't listen to him at all. But the fact that someone's able to come out and say, oh yeah, five years ago I thought this way. And now I've jigged my thought. That is the scientific process. And to downplay, to say that someone's not saying, yeah, I read that book five years ago. Uh, 10 years ago and i didn't agree therefore that guy today can't have anything to say is it's batshit crazy i mean right. einstein was a fucking lunatic if you think about it right like right. normal ideas right the space time right. continuum or like people thought that that was insane and it's it's you know you have this idea you go back to this evolutionary base when i said n equals one i wasn't being insulting by any means because that's how these things start Right. It starts with n equals one. That's the idea. And then, oh, you sound like you have what I have. Let's try this. And it works. And then when it continues to work, you can't go to Rob Wolf and say, well, stop doing what you're doing because I look for RCTs on exactly what you say. I didn't find any. Well, that, that's not how this works either because the amount of research that people think is out there, like I use the example, I had a, a, a student come to me once. I forget exactly what he was asking, but he wanted to research something like, you know, the prevalence of basketball injuries for people this height and this weight and so many variables. And I looked at him and I said, oh, you don't, it's not that your, you, your interest isn't there. You just don't understand what we have to work with. Mm -hmm. And, and the scientific method is this idea of, you know, this is what we have. It's, this is the best idea now. And then you hone and chip and hone and chip. And if you were saying the same shit you were saying 10 years ago, I, this conversation would be going a lot worse <laughs> right, I mean, right. because that's not the same. And then it's the same, I think the same people who are mad at, at you for putting too much science in your book, then would accuse you of being unscientific right? right? because they don't see the RCT. 
Right. So I guess it's, it's a matter of understanding the difference between research-based practice and evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. And you had a great podcast recently talk, really unpacking that. That was phenomenal. And a, a possibly helpful example of this, everybody's heard of the Mediterranean diet, and it mm -hmm. tends to not be a, a controversial topic. And it's cool, if you go to PubMed and you put Mediterranean diet in, in as a search term, it will give you this little window on the side that shows you the number of citations over time. And I believe it was 1958, somewhere around there, that the first citation popped up where a guy wrote basically kind of a, a review, a theory paper about the Mediterranean diet and what its characteristics were, and maybe it might be health promoting. And then there wasn't much of anything for a good five years. And then there were a few more papers, few more papers, but these things were all review, speculative, you had to get into the 1970s, I believe, before you started seeing a little bit of epidemiological research around that. And then you had to get into the 1980s before you saw a randomized control trial. So this is the, the, the kind of normal process with this. People have an observation, they have a hypothesis, and it may take decades before you actually see any type of, of more rigorous, like kind of gold standard testing in that. And it's not to say that we should just jump whole hog into something that's in a, a really speculative uh, situation, but it's just as, as cognitively disingenuine to say, well, we don't have an RCT, so this, this thing's invalid. You know, it's like, well, we have a paucity of data and so we have to evaluate it on what we, what we have currently. And funny enough, that's, that's where like some kind of clinic-based anecdote ends up being some of the most potent drivers, and it usually only shifts into that randomized control trial setting if there's enough anecdote to get people to think, well, there might actually be something here. Let's test it so that we can see if there's real signal or if this is just noise and we're getting duped by the whole process. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and with nutrition, I'm going to go back to this again. I feel like it's even more all over the place because of the like if you think of the number of biochemical interactions occurring at any given time and you match that with the, you know, the, the changes, the difference in your genome versus my genome, and then you add epigenetics and then you add consciousness with, again, we'll get back to how consciousness fucks everything up, but you get to the idea that your, your, your thoughts and your, and your, and your feelings and, and, and how, are you depressed today? And mm -hmm. all of these things. And, and by the way, a lot of that is not, cognitive as much as it is your gut also feeling this depression and mm -hmm. you know what I mean and there's there's linkages between gut health and mental health and there's so many factors that the idea that someone is going to you know stick their peg in a hole and say don't eat dairy I have a real problem with that but what I right. don't have a problem with is someone having the balls to come out and say I don't think everyone should be eating dairy now, where's the RCT? Well, you know what? We're not in this land. So you're obviously more versed in the, in the nutritional research, but again, correct me if I'm wrong. Let's take vegetarianism. Let's take veganism. There's a lot of research whereby there's a lot of numbers of people who were followed over time where you write down their food journal. Mm -hmm. If you take this large amount of epidemiological research, one could come to the conclusion, be it a good conclusion or not, that eating vegetables is the only way forward, right? But the, when you go to the research itself, you realize that a lot of that research, again, correct me if I'm wrong, they were following what people eat. 
It, what they claimed they ate. Exactly. To add just even yeah. another layer to that. Yeah. yeah. Ask me what I ate today. Or, or what I'm they not, remembered. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to mention anything I ate while standing because those calories don't count. <laughs> right. right. And then I can talk to you about how healthy I am as we're drinking a beer uh, on a Saturday. Like, you know what I right. mean? Like these things that it, it's based on memory. And the other thing is, is, let's take smoking, for example. To, in order for them to say that smoking causes cancer, this was not a, a thing that happened right away. Even when we knew it caused cancer. The problem is, is that the profile of someone who smokes, there's a lot of other detrimental health mm -hmm. activities and behaviors that can influence that. So is it smoking or is it the fact that you stay up too late? Is it smoking right. or is it the fact that you work in a, a factory where a lot of other people smoke and now you're influenced to smoke and living in the factory, you're in, in, inhaling whatever the hell All you're in. other stuff, yeah. So again, like, so I don't know that we can say one or the other, but when you say, when someone does stake their claim and say vegetarianism is something that everyone should be doing and everyone should eat this way, uh, I'll just leave it at that. I won't even ask a question. I'll just leave the floor open. What am I missing here? I, I don't think you're missing anything. And you know, it's interesting bringing up the, the smoking piece. Um, that was just some of the best use of epidemiology that we've ever had. And it was such a like, knocked it out of the park, one pitch <laughs> over the plate, knocked it, you know, just blasted it. But when we look at the, you know, people will say correlation doesn't mean causation and all that type of stuff. But if the, if the correlation is strong enough, you can really start inferring some causation. And when we look at, at things like smoking as it relates to say lung cancer, it's, it's like a, a 10,000 as, as kind of like a, a number. And when we start looking at things like it is um, meat good for you or bad for you, is broccoli good for you or bad for you, as, as kind of an arbitrary scale, it's like a two or a three. And you have to get up into the, the 20s, 30s, 100s before we really statistically start saying, yeah, there really might be some, some, some legit causative stuff here. And what, what definitely gets, gets lost in the mix is what are folks not eating, you know, in that, that move towards any type of, of healthy, healthy dietary practice? You know, what are the, the big ones that people jettison? You know, liquid calories are kind of one of the first ones. Sodas, typically reducing alcohol intake, uh, just some movement towards more whole, largely unprocessed foods. And then usually people start adopting other lifestyle factors. They get outside, they hang out with other people that, that have similar kind of, kind of goals and, and whatnot. And we know that community piece is huge. So, you know, you, you have to do a, a, a hat tip to the folks trying to do this research, but it's kind of been politicized and weaponized in a lot of ways. Like we, we make some, some claims both for and against various things that it, 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 it's not well supported and also, um, I'm one of these kind of quasi doomsday bunker people. Like I've been watching economic stuff for a long time. I think it was 2005 that it first got on my radar that the Congressional Budget Office in the United States was predicting that the, the US would be bankrupt from diabetes related costs by 2030, 2035. And that really freaked me out. I was like, holy shit, that's not that far away. And just when I found it, it was, it was significantly further than where it is today. And I, I just see this like roiling mass of dick measuring and, and pissing matches going on when really what we need is this kind of outcome-based deal. We need to help people get healthier. 
uh, one of the best dietary guidelines I've ever seen comes out of Brazil. And it's very broad, whole, largely whole unprocessed foods, try to, try to have an eye towards traditional food systems. And that removes so much of the dietary dogma. And, and, and uh, if, if implemented both at kind of a policy level and, and more of a, a day-to-day lifestyle level, that would fix all of our problems. We don't then need to worry about paleo versus vegan because nobody's dying from cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes at, at rates that literally could cripple Western economies. So this is the stuff that I noodle on and the, the more meta like background deal. Um, clearly I have an orientation towards this kind of protein centric paleo type stuff, but you know, we, we have a, a, I'm on the board of directors of a lipidology clinic and I would say 90, 85, 90% of the folks that we deal with, they end up getting kind of a lowish carb type diet, but 10% of people, they end up with this, this uh, really elevated lipoproteins and triglycerides from a high fat diet. And we completely uh, 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 abandon ship on that. And it looks like, per, you know, high to moderate protein, low fat, high carb from whole food sources. And it, it looks like a, a kind of a classic bodybuilder diet. And those people thrive on that. And so we have to be able to, to tweak and fiddle these things appropriately based off the clinical outcome. Like you, you can arrive with some theory and you, you kind of have to have some uh, heuristic to just begin the process. But then if things aren't going well, we, we you know, okay, that's not working. So we'll go to, to this level. And I, 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 really, I really wish that we could move kind of en masse more towards that, that direction because the the, you know, even with COVID, like we're, we're seeing so much of the, the morbidity and mortality appears to be directly related to poor metabolic health. And so how much death, suffering, economic impact could have been altered if we, we have been focusing on better metabolic health to say nothing of like the last six months, like a, a hair on fire public health program of low carb, vegan, Mediterranean, pick something, just don't eat the food out of the middle of the, the supermarket, you know? So yeah, yeah. It becomes food versus non-food. And, and, yeah. and I, I wanna point out something that other people don't see. And I guess podcasting bring this out, but people who listen to your podcast are tend to be the people who already listen to you anyway. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, but I want everyone to, to realize this. Do you notice that, that this is a nuanced response that you might not get when you read the review of a book? There, it, and, and the fact that this, the response is nuanced is all you can ask for from a scientific perspective. The idea to say that, well, no, there is a general thought process. And if I get what you're saying, there's like, let's just start with eating fucking food, right? Like, let's just, let's just start there. I have something, I call it the evolutionary perspective of health. Um, I, I, run, I talk about it at my, my courses for movement, but I pretty much say, there's three questions that I ask to, to try to understand what the problem is with whoever's in front of me. Number one is what are we naturally selected to do? Number two is what are we doing? And number three is how are you compensating for the fact that you're not really doing everything that's found in number one, because Mm -hmm. life doesn't, doesn't work that way. And if we use that as a basis, I think like what you're saying, there's, there's a systematic approach to this where you say first food versus non-food, let's go with food then in the food, you tend to have this, this, this perception based on your experiences and based on how you have interpreted the scientific literature. 
and you're an authority on this topic, which by the way, for people who are staunch research people, they always forget that authority is also part of evidence. Mm. Authority is, it's, it's not the highest part of it, but it's part of evidence, especially when RCTs are not there, right? You, you, it, it, so it's a nuanced view, but it's a systematic view where the system allows you to jump off at any time and change your approach, mm-hmm. right? And that's clinical practice. That's, that's the difference between, you know, someone reading a book and someone writing a book, if, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. 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 It's really yeah. well, a very well made point. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? Because I don't even remember what the point was. I mean, <laughs> so in other words, when you see someone, you're doing what I think I'm saying for physical conditioning. And you brought up that you do a lot of functional range conditioning, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Maybe we get into that a little bit more. But with functional range conditioning, what happened was I started, you know, teaching the, this this kind of methodology. And then the methodology, after you teach it for a while, you start to realize that unless there is a system behind the method then it's not self-perpetuating because mm-hmm. they run methods, right? Do this, don't do that. But methods are not inherently smart. Systems are inherently smart where a system will give you the answer uh, or, or help you figure out the answer where right. it tells you the answer, right? Right. Now, you write a book, it, to some extent, you're telling someone what you think the answer is, but is it based on a system? And it seems to me like you're basing this on a system that if I send you my mother, and I say, you know what, I've, I've been doing a, a carnivore diet with my mother and she seems significantly worse. It's not out of the realm of possibilities that you might eventually put her on a largely plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then there really is no nothing to be mad at here other than to say research is interpreted as research is interpreted. Yeah. And there's no 100% this guy's right, this guy's wrong. There's just interpretations. Yeah, and just kind of a funny story along that line. So my first book was definitely far more dogmatic. It was much more prescriptive, do A, then B, then C. And it was super successful. Like it it sold nearly a million copies. That second book, Wired to Eat, is a far better book. It's just not even on on the same, same level. And it sold well, but it hasn't sold nearly as well. And it's not particularly dogmatic. It's this sorting process of like, let's try to figure out where you are. And then based off of where you are, we've got a couple of different logic trees that we can start moving our way down. And if we do this and things are good, then we'll keep going that way. If not, then we've got ABC off of that. And it, it it's funny, it's such a better book, but the, the irony is that the main folks that have really glommed onto it are clinicians because it's really helped them in their clinical practice to better delineate this stuff and and for the the general consumer it, it was okay like people were like oh it was a good book and it was helpful and everything but um the the clinician level has really been where it got the the best buy-in with it but you know it's um it, it, it when you were when you were talking i was thinking a, a, a couple of different things one of them is that we need these heuristics these kind of simple messages to just get people moving in a direction. And I think that that's some of what that that system type thing is. But then folks have a tendency to turn that heuristic and etch it into stone and turn it into religious doctrine. And then you, in theory, have no ability to iterate on. So, you know, grandma started off on a on a carnivore diet. Maybe she felt great for a month and then months two, three, four and five, she felt like shit. And so do we just keep 
doing the thing that's not no longer working or do we iterate off that you know and the, but the irony and i'm sure you've seen this but the ironclad certitude really sells remarkably well absolutely whereas nuance it, it gives people a rash they don't know what 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 to do with that yeah and i don't know that there's a there's a fix to it because i mean physically I don't think homo sapiens are given enough information to manage themselves from a physical perspective. And that's my specialty. Uh, I for sure as hell feel the same about nutrition, but I wouldn't say that out loud, but I will in front of you. Um, I don't think people are given enough information to sort through the information that's coming at them, which is why, you know, CNN level research papers are so utterly confusing. Like I remember I just saw um, a, uh, a commercial not too long ago and it was, it was in jest to a certain extent, but it was going over all of the uh, nutritional uh, expectations or nutritional advice that's been given over the years. And it was just a, a clusterfuck of eat gluten, don't eat gluten, eat high fat, don't eat any fat at all, don't eat meat, meat's bad for you. Oh, meat's good for you. Eggs are going to be increased cholesterol. Eggs don't increase cholesterol. And it seems like I call these people article chasers. And and article chasers, what I refer to in my, in, in my field is that some people have this, like, the only in, important information came out between, like, they have a, a number. I'm only going to read shit that's five years old or newer because everything else doesn't mean, mean anything anymore, right? And what happens there is that in the last five years, people got interested in doing, uh, you know, stuff on gluten. So that's going to change perspective. And then some interest changes and then the research changes. But that doesn't mean that this is gone. It just means that now you're focused somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's why people, and with nutrition, man, I got to tell you, I, I, I don't, I'm not a, you know, on Instagram now where there's some people they're, they're going for runs, like really long distance runs and maybe they're ex Navy seals or maybe they're whatever. And they're like, they're going, they're like, yeah, I just, I just fractured my ankle yesterday. Who gives a shit? Push on. Everyone needs to push. Like, no, calm the fuck down a little bit. Maybe. Right. Because those are broad based things that you're telling people to do, but you're an outlier, right? right? I was just watching the show with my family, uh, the, the World's Toughest Race. Have you seen mm -hmm. this? Yep, yep. What a show, right? Unbelievable. I think these guys are like, I, I, I'm like, the, I, they're inspiring. Then again, a lot of inspiring people ended up dead on the side of, <laughs> side of Mount Everest. Right. Maybe calm the fuck down, right? right? Um, I, I, again, I don't know where I was going with this is this, this idea that, that these outliers are telling us what to do. Um, and, and it's tough because we have a population of folks that you have to douse them with gasoline and light them on fire to get them off the couch. And then the only response to that is, I'm gonna be in the CrossFit games this year, you know, age group, I'm 79 years old, I have bilateral knee replacements and I'm fucking going for it. And it's yeah. like, there's no middle ground in between that. You know, it's, it's uh, it's tough. This has been one of the most perplexing things of my career. Like the, there's, um, there are very few sane people in the middle. Like you're, you're just begging people to save themselves, you know, to modify diet and move and, and do something there. And then the, the, the flip side again, is just that, that like, I'm going to kill myself via exercise. I'm committing suicide by exercise. And you, mm -hmm. You see that too. And the, the two extremes just make you like, I, I don't know exactly what I'm doing here. I don't know that I'm providing any value <laughs> at it's, all. It's sexy, man. Like, yeah. 
you know, they don't, they don't, uh, they, they, I, they always say they don't um, report on the planes that land. They right. only report on the planes that crash, right? Because there's something sexy. It's a, that's a weird way to say this. There's something sexy about the idea of you might crash or you might live, but there's nothing sexy about the idea that, oh yeah, everything went on well. Everything's going yep. well. You know what I mean? And you have these people, these outliers that, you know, I used to be a gymnast and now I can do a backflip. And everyone's like, oh my God, I like that. That's amazing. I'm going to try to do a backflip. It's like, well, hold on. You're a 47 year old with a gut and you're a smoker and you, you haven't even done exercise. Maybe don't do a fucking backflip. Right. Maybe there's something else here. Maybe there's, there's a nuanced approach that the outliers make it seem like the nuanced approach is, is, is not the way to go. And you have to follow one thing. Yeah. Right. And then guy like you, guy like you comes out and they have the courage to say, I think it might be wrong. And then as much as, you know, we should be encouraging those ideas and then contemplating them in these ways. And then asking the author how he's changed in the last 10 years based on information. It, it just doesn't do that. It's just, as soon as you say something, you're either smart or stupid, you're either liked or disliked and that's it forever. Right. Right. There's right. Just no way out of this. And you made a good point. If you read the paleo solution, which by the way, it's, it's not, it's, it's a good book. It has a lot of research. It, it's ideas that are thrown around. It gives you a systematic base that you can build on. And then, like you said, as nuances come into your brain, as you reflect on what you write, then wired to eat comes out, which is saying, yeah, paleolithic diet, but, but how about you? Like, what do you need? And we right. figure that out. And that's what I was getting at before. I was making the comparison to uh, my functional range assessment, right? An FRA, um, which is we're trying to tailor exercise to goals. We're trying to tailor exercise to genetic capability. We're trying to find out exactly what your right shoulder needs because you know what your right shoulder doesn't need. I can never tell someone your right shoulder needs bench pressing. That is not something that I can say. I don't know your right shoulder. I've never met your right shoulder. And a bench press is just a, a cognitive idea as to how to contort your body in a certain way under load. It's not a real thing. Your brain doesn't have a bench press waiting to be, it's not like a primitive movement. It's just a way to load your body, right? Um, but with your shoulder, your shoulder might need the opposite of that. So mm -hmm. I find out what your shoulder needs and then I need to go with what your shoulder needs and that's, that's how we train. And that's what I think uh, the second book really, really brought about is we need to run, we need to check, we need to see, is right. this what you need or is it not? You can believe that that's what most people need. And I can't disagree with the, with the science in that regard, but it's not what everyone needs. And right. that's the point. It, it, it may be what you need for a couple of months and then we may need to change that, you know, which really freaks people out. It's like, wait, what? I, this isn't going to be the thing that I do the rest of my life. And it's like, oh, maybe or maybe not. There may be some iterations off of that. Yeah. So, so what do you do? Like, let's say that someone's listening to that and we do want to give some kind of, of advice as to, there's some people who are going to take this as saying, I just want advice as to how to live comfortably and live well. And then there's going to be other people at the high end performance end of this who are going to be, no, no, I want everything. Mm -hmm. I want to know what, what, so let's say that I give you one of our high performance athletes. What is the workup with that guy? How does this work? What is the Rob Wolf kind of thought process as opposed to, I'm going to read, you know, what you said in a book and not be able to ask you questions and just, you know, decide what you think based on what you right. wrote at that time. 
Well, it, it, I'm, I'm glad it sounds either this is confirmation bias and we're both idiots or we're actually on to Which, something by the way, here. I, 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 I fully, I might be an idiot. We're in good company at least, okay, but yeah, yeah. Um, I would sit down and really try to figure out what are you doing right now and, and get as comprehend what's your sleep, what time do you go to bed, what time do you get up, what's that sleep quality like. Um, I'm not a huge fan of wearables, but I might you know, if the person has an aura ring or something, might get a little bit of a sense of HRV just to, you know, again, just kind of dumping information into into the, the subconscious in some ways, get as much of that background and then ask them, what do you want to do? Like, what's the specific goal here so that we've got some sort of a delta we've got where we're starting and then in theory where we we want to go. And then on the nutrition side, I, I guess the, the, the kind of three things that I, I consider are kind of the, the temporal elements of nutrition, the qualitative elements of nutrition, and then the quantitative elements. And the, the temporal is just timing. You know, we're finding that with circadian biology, that maybe eating more of the calories early in the day are, are more beneficial. Maybe partitioning more of the calories around the workout, even, you know, pre and post seems to be some some real benefit to that on the qualitative side we kind of think about nutrient density and ideally we get as much nutrition per unit of calories that we consume that can run into a brick wall though if you have somebody doing the tour de france or they're they're doing multiple uh, uh ironmans a really uh low processed nutrient dense diet can destroy people's gut because it's got so much fiber in it so you might actually shift more towards like rice or maybe you do some maltodextrin drinks or something like that because their their work output is so high that it's literally maxed out their capacity to to digest the food they're eating. So you actually need to refine it a little bit more. I wouldn't recommend that for a, a type B personality computer programmer that's 50 pounds overweight. Like we want to go exactly the opposite, but we start thinking about some food quality within food quality, I am kind of geeked out on like the immunogenic food story. Like if you have any GI problems, if you have some joint issues, uh, is dairy a problem? Is, is gluten a problem? Is corn a problem? Are eggs a problem? If there are some really common allergens that, that just seem to be like some low hanging fruit, mm. pull them out for a couple of weeks, reintroduce, see how you do. And so I, you know, and that, that again, it, it, it feels pretty, pretty safe and, mm -hmm. and for the individual, it's kind of like, I took eggs out, didn't change anything. Okay, keep eating eggs, no, no big deal. Um, so thinking about immunogenic foods and then uh, the, also on the, the qualitative piece, um, the uh, finding appropriate glycemic load. Some people do great with higher carb diets. I'm not one of those people. Like I, mm -hmm. I just do really well on kind of a peri ketogenic diet um, in the sun. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the summer, I notice I can handle some more fruit. If I go to Mexico or near the equator, I seem to handle more, more carbs as it gets more into like, you know, January, February, I, I really shift more into that more ketogenic state. And then finally, kind of arguably, the easiest thing is just kind of figuring out the total amount the person needs. And there are very well established guidelines around that, you know, uh, 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 easy uh, thing is a gram of protein per pound of body weight or a gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. Uh, if you're, if you do well on carbs, then we do the bulk of the carbs for you. And again, then we, we iterate back to 
and we try to front load more of that early in the day and or around you know workout nutrition and we just keep a little bit of an eye on the the quality like if people start getting really gassy and bloated or having some you know kind of joint creakiness then we think about that that immunogenic process and then we really test it like if if we we delineate some some goals and also I like writing down if our assumptions, like if we're changing something, particularly if it's a real quantum shift. So like um, some people will mention uh, kind of like digestive issues. Um, let's say we start supplementing with some digestive support like uh, uh, betaine hydrochloride or, or some digestive enzymes. If we have low stomach acid and you've been having problems with digestion and we s support that, then this should happen. And then we should be able to critically assess that, you know, and sometimes it's, it's a little more subjective. It's like, oh yeah, my digestion seems better. Like my poops are, are mm -hmm. better, you know, they're better formed or whatever. Um, but I guess that that's kind of like the, the big picture on it. And then just lots of check-ins, you know, how are, how are you doing? What, what are, uh, you know, um, uh, is sleep continuing to, to be good? If that starts going off the rails, then we need to, to iterate off of that. Uh, I had a pretty cool gig for about six years working with the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program where I'd work with the SEAL teams, the special boat teams and their families, which was, was really cool. So these guys are like hard to break, but when they break, they break pretty big. And it was interesting again, where uh, these guys would motor along and they could eat tin cans. Like they, they just were really robust, but the, the hypervigilant state, the, um, the time zone changes, and oftentimes they would catch some sort of a, a funky gut pathogen while they're in Afghanistan or something like that. And they were never really the same after that. And we had to really modify what they were doing to be able to get them back up to the level of performance that they had previously, which is that thing again of a life circumstance can change your situation such that we need to rejigger what was what was going on. So we, we, we try to build that plan, have some really um, delineated goals and, and what success should look like so that I'm accountable and that that person is accountable. And then we can can really critically assess whether or not that's delivering the goods. You said something about what what is the goal and how do you determine uh, whether or not you were successful or not? And with nutrition, this is all out of the, you know, it's open as well. Is it you've got abs? Is that what the goal was? You, you, you feel happier. Is that what the goal was? Your joints don't creep. What is the, what's the goal of nutrition is the point. And is it, is it clinical or is it general? And, and, and that's what you're saying is that it's going to, it's going to depend. And then it's going to depend, which people don't like to hear. Right. Because right. it depends is not helpful. But again, going back to the systems approach, there's got to be general generalities as to, what everyone maybe should be doing. And, and one that I'll bring up now is, would you agree that in general, uh, maybe people should eat less? Yes. This, okay. Yeah. So yeah. I don't yeah. think that this is a scientific argument that on a whole, the focus on food is far too great. And the idea that you're gonna run out of energy giving nutrients and fall dead if you don't eat every 20 minutes is a real, is a difficult one for me. Now, personally, I do, I do fasting. Um, and I, I don't know that I, I've been doing it for many, many years. And I don't know that I do it. I don't know that there's ways to, I think the idea of eating less is probably 
good and then yep. playing with the fasting what time of day works for you and, and that kind of thing but you would say generally eat less yes yeah and it, you know uh i think so this gets are you okay with a little bit of woo like oh. this is completely completely uh, unfounded scientifically but i'm it, okay with woo as soon as someone goes hey Trey, are you okay with this little bit of woo because okay. now like, oh we understand each other we understand that we're trying to push our brains to come up with concepts that will help people we're not necessarily saying go drink this snake oil yes, so, yes absolutely yeah. Yeah. woo out with me go ahead so, here's some woo I've noticed that when people find, if their diet is pretty nutritionally dense, it's mainly whole foods. It, it, it could be higher carb, it could be lower carb, whatever, but mainly whole foods, very nutritionally dense, adequate protein as, as kind of an anchor. Yep. I noticed that people probably need 20% fewer calories than what a, a standard kind of like basal metabolic rate, physical activity would, would really recommend. So. Uh, a person that might uh, just for easy numbers say that they uh, in theory they need 2,000 calories a day they might need 1,800 calories a day and they'll motor along just fine and mm -hmm. and, and actually do better uh, their visceral adiposity will be low their inflammation will be super low their digestion is really good their sleep is good and I can't I mechanistically I don't know what's going on here other than think that highly processed foods, we almost have to eat more calories because we're trying to hit some nutrient minimums. Mm, you know, yeah. we need a certain amount of magnesium and, you know, on and on and on. But it, it seems like people kind of need more energy when the, the, the nutrient quality is low. And again, this is super woo. And, and, and not woo. Hold on, hold on. Okay, so what you're saying is there might be internal um mechanisms whereby if you're low on something your body wants you to search out that something yeah. and then the 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 thing to play with in that regards is consciousness and then people say i i need to eat more i'm hungrier and and the idea of satiety with food this 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 is not completely woo woo no no, no. okay good so no. i don't i don't want i don't want people to say oh they talk some shit it's not because Look at pregnant women's another good example where you have a situation where if they're deficient in something, they would crave those somethings. Yeah. Right. Now, again, not RCT, but please continue because this is very interesting. Yeah. And, and so it, it's, I think as a baseline, and again, this gets squirrely because you start getting very high level athletes and they have super high motor output and they need 4,000, 5,000 calories a day. But again, I kind of see those, those outliers. It, it's kind of non-linearity. It's kind of, you, you know, uh, uh, S-curves, J-curves, stuff like that. Like it, it just kind of falls down. But in this more medium of, of somebody that maybe is performance oriented, but they're, they're maybe putting as much premium on quality of life, of health span as, as, as uh, uh, longevity. And they also want to be able to kick some ass al along the way. So we're, you, you know, all of those things, then it, it seems like what, what I've noticed when I'm running numbers on people, and I've worked with some other folks that, that uh, good friends of mine, they run an outfit called Keto Gains. They've got thousands of people doing these, these really well-formulated whole food-based ketogenic diets. And it's kind of jaw-dropping how low the calorie intake is on these folks, particularly when they're in like year two, year three, year four, and their body has really adapted to this. They've, they've really 
figured out what they, what they need to do. And these people have great musculature, they have solid performance, and they're consistently eating less than what the, the standard, you know, uh, uh, calculators would, would suggest around that. So I, I do, and you know, I'm not a fan of calorie restriction as a means towards longevity within the, the, the whole like mouse model and reduce your intake by, by 50% and all that type of, of stuff. That. Let's, let's okay, let you continue, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that scene. People okay. terrified of protein and all that, but, um, but it is interesting that if we could eat in a way where we spontaneously reduce calorie intake by 10%, 20%, not only are we not overweight and, and potentially suffering all these metabolically driven diseases, I think that there is some, some other kind of physiological advantage or maybe just the advantage is that you're healthy, you know, and, and that health is such a, a rare thing that we see these days that it seems kind of anomalous, but I, you know, that's my, that's my woo piece for the, the control yourself podcast. Well, if I want to add some woo. I mean, I, I found the same thing. I found that when you start doing something like fasting, and I don't remember why I started doing fasting, to be honest with you, but you do get that first few days where you feel like this is not right. I don't feel right. I don't feel, I don't feel energy. And then I always tell people that I don't know when it happened, but at some point uh, I would move the high, you know, aerobic conditioning or anaerobic, like high bouts of intense conditioning to the times where I was fasting. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, and I could, I could sew together a pretty picture about, the hunter gatherer scene and i don't know that this is 100 percent, but it does make sense to me that the, your your senses would be would be heightened your 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 um your musculoskeletal system would be heightened your neural system your output would be heightened in times where you were required to perform to perform or to yeah. get nutrients yeah. i don't know if there's research on that i i don't know i'm sure there's research around that which gets back to what we were saying before is that unless there's we're, I'm typed in functional range conditioning in Google. I press enter. I don't see anything. Must be nonsense. Right. Well, I'm sorry. You've never studied science, sir or ma'am. That's not how this works. So I'm sure there's, or, or is there, is there, or is that just a, a, a story that fits? There's definitely, there absolutely are animal models that demonstrate that the fasted state, um, animals are more creative. And, and, and granted, there's, there's, there's a U curve on it. There's, if you do too much, then that's starvation. So there's, sure. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's yeah. boundaries to exist in that. You but, don't want to be a breatharian. Have you heard of those people? Yes. Yes, yeah. I have. Okay. And, uh, I hope they figured that out. It would solve a lot of problems. Um, <laughs> and, 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 but you know, if you're, and again, it, it, it's mouse animal models, which you, you have to be careful extrapolating elsewhere, but it's pretty clear that if an animal is super well-fed, it's kind of lazy and it's like, eh, why should I bother? You know, which is actually good, good evolutionary wiring. If, if you're good, don't, don't, don't mess with things. But then as they, they start running out of calories and you start getting into that more extended fasting state, um, uh, neurogenesis, brain derived neurotropic factors, creative, you know, problem solving, all those things seem to improve, you know, for in, in humans, it would be at that like, 24 to 72 hour level and you start pushing it much beyond that and you start seeing some some decline and so i i think that there's some real credible stuff to that and it, it man how many athletes have said when i show it, fighters in particular i like to go under the ring a little bit hungry and, it, and it's not just you know stay hungry it's if you if you got a bunch of food in your system 
you're just not as crisp. And there's even physiological, more direct physiological stories to that. If your gut is dealing with some amount of digestive process, then there's blood that's shunted to the gut that's not available to go to the muscles and the, the rest of the circulatory system. So they're, uh, you know, in these uh, shorter distance anaerobic events, a lot of people set personal records, you know, in a fasted state. I don't know that you want to train that way every single time. This is the difference between training days and testing days and whatnot. But this is where you can kind of tweak biology. I, I, I detest the term biohack. Like I, I just, Oh my it, God, it I was going to bring me. that shit up. Hold, so. like, before I, they make it sound like I wasn't, I was going to write, I wrote that down. Biohacking, <laughs> big question mark. Okay. We'll get back to that, but there's a bunch of things I got I to jump in. The one thing we, we kind of glossed over it and people might not be up to the research as maybe you and I are, but the idea of animal studies and you said something about telomeres. And, and I do want to bring attention to the work of Brett Weinstein on this. Yes. Topic. Yeah. Have you, are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah. It, there's a, a podcast uh, where Eric Weinstein, his brother, interviews Brett Weinstein. Uh, I can't remember the episode. They were talking about the disc. Mm -hmm. information uh, with research and he got into this this thing where brett was researching the lab mice that they were using for all these telomere studies and uh, again well you know it's a, it's a dense paper so i'm going to give it my best but the idea being is that mice tend to have these extraordinarily long telomeres right and then you study mice so you see the telomeres are kind of like the shoestrings at the end of your chromosomes that are counting down your days to be alive or so we thought it, it, at one point um, but what they found is because they were, you know, breeding mice specifically to be in uh, scientific experiments, that they were artificially elongating the telomere lengths by by crazy amounts. Right. And and that might sound like a small problem to people, but it's not because it speaks to the idea of scalability of drug trials. It speaks to the idea of scalability of nutritional trials and. People looking at, for example, caloric nutrition and the effect on telomeres. Well, you, a lot of those studies automatically have to be thought of as somewhat biased. Yeah. Because yeah. of this fact. So I did, a, usually each year I have kind of a, a big topical presentation that I do at, at, at conferences and whatnot. And this year the, the topic was longevity, are we trying too hard? And I didn't mention that, that specific telomere information, but... I, I found some stuff that really kind of uh, dovetails into that. And uh, I'll, I'll ping you the paper if, if you want to read it. It's really interesting. But it, it makes the case that we have selected these lab mice to eat an obesogenic diet and be obese and be sick and all the rest of that stuff while not allowing them the ability to adapt to it. So we've, so we've put this interesting selection pressure on, on there and, and so the, the researchers made the case, we really can't draw any conclusions from this at all. Mm -hmm. And then when you add in uh, uh, Brett's information around the, the extended telomere length and what the implications are there for toxicity of drugs, of these longevity trials, it, it, interestingly, um, the little bit that's been done in feeding these research animals a species appropriate diet there is no benefit to caloric restriction when these animals are fed a species appropriate diet. And in fact, it shortens their lifespan when, when they're in, in, induced to a, a significant calorie restriction. And this one paper, it's from these British guys and they're just so fucking pithy at the end of this, but it, it, it basically makes the case that 
the totality of longevity research may be worthless due to this artifact of, of basically you know, that the, the calorie restriction is basically benefiting these animals because they're eating less of a shitty diet, not more. And that's it. Like that's the totality of longevity research. Just like that, eh? just like that years and years of research and it's one thing is overlooked. Lambo. <laughs> And think of how many billions of dollars spent in biotech and, you know, all the stuff that's supposed to, you know, be a, a magic pill for, for longevity versus we know from an evolutionary biology perspective, humans have a powerful longevity bias because of the complexity of our culture. We, the, 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 the grandmother paradox, um, we have been really disproportionately selected to live longer. And if yeah. we can avoid cancer, cardiovascular disease, and infectious disease, we tend to live a long time. Mm -hmm. And so if you ate something that looked like a species appropriate diet, lifted some weights, did some mobility, got some sun on your skin, you've got an outstanding chance to be like 95 and still kicking some ass, you know, like the, it'd be a very short uh, uh, decline. And there's absolutely nothing in the research that suggests we could do anything that would, it, it, enhance our lifespan at all. Like the, the, one of the best papers that I've seen on this, it suggested if you did calorie restriction from your youth, you, it, it, you would be uh, sarcopenic, hypogonadic, cold, depressed your whole life, and you might get six additional years of life. Whereas we know that just exercising gives you three or four years. Getting out in the sun gives you two or three years. You know? And those are things that we know, like we can take those to the bank, whereas all this other stuff like rapamycin and, and, and uh, uh, glucophage and stuff like that, they're interesting, but man, they, 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 it, it's all, I, I think it's all built on this very speculative house of cards versus kind of having that evolutionary biology underpinning as, as the foundation to start with. Boring. Boring. <laughs> Can't Boring. make a drug out of it either. Be fucking logical and not everyone has the answers. Ah, I need, I need someone to tell me what to do. God damn it. No, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's a uh, biohacking, right? That's the, it's the idea that there's something See, the machinery of our body is the machinery of our body, right? When you say biohacking, I, th I think people are trying to say, is there a way to hack the system to get more out of it? But the system is the system, right? The system is the system, and you only have the tools that the system has to use with. So I don't know if it's biohacking or just don't fuck anything up. Right. Right. right? And I think it that's what people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear me say, no, eating avocados will not make you you know, squat 500 pounds and it's not a magical food. And, you know, you know, acai, you know, there's always some shit, right? Acai, right. Eat a fucking grape. It, like it's, this, it's kind of, the same, you know what I mean? Yep. And, but people want, they want what they want. They want the answer. This is going to make you do this. And I don't, I don't think that that is, a, is there. I don't think that we hacking <laughs> the means that we're adding something to it. You know, the evolutionary process and, and our brains, for example, were, forged over, you know, millions of years of, of, of pressures that we can't even understand, right? So we get this brain, which is the most complicated thing we've ever studied, right? It's, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing more complicated than mm -hmm. the human brain. And the idea that one dude hacked it and found uh, something that no one else before found. Like I tell people the the scientific revolution is six, five, 600 years old, which means that there's 
thousands of humans and thousands of brains over thousands over all these years, right? Tens of the millions of papers, different disciplines, harnessing the, the collective capacity of human intelligence. But that dude fucking figured it out. Like that guy said acai, if you eat it at 3.30 in the morning, cures everything. I don't think that there's solutions like that. Right. And going back to what you said before about this longevity thing, there's also this idea that humans are somehow better off now because we, we live longer. But I do want to bring people's attention to the research about the quality of life, mm -hmm. extra years that you get. And, and it's not good. And that's right. a big deal. And, and you, I read, uh, do you read Civilized to Death by chance? Yep. 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 I mean, great book. great book. This probably holds in it all over the place. You know, it's, it's some, some, you know, like we were talking about some opinions, some of that, but it, the book's idea is, 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 is what I think you need to take from this is that our lifespans were not that much longer, that much shorter. Back then, a lot of people died at birth, mm -hmm. right? And it was, it was, you know, there was a lot of young, but if they got to a certain age, even back in pre-civilized society, the chances of them living to where we live was very good. Yep. And then we come in with all of this technology and we have this, we're going to expand life's, uh, lifespan. And maybe we did, maybe we did, but the, the years that we got, I, I don't know if people want those years. And, and that's a strange thing too, right? Because there's this balance between you want to live longer, but you want to live. Right. Not just long. Right. right? Well, it, 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 it's interesting. Um, I'm almost 50. When I think back to when my dad was 50, he seemed old. Now, my dad Great. drank quite a bit. He yeah. smoked. He didn't, you know, like uh, he, he didn't have the advantages that I had. But, it, but my aging vector is completely typical for kind of a, a non-Westernized population. Like that, and that's something that I think is, is so sad that um, medical anthropology hasn't better owned because they really have a good understanding of this this delta between westernized and non-westernized populations. And again, it doesn't have to be paleo, it does, it, you know, but just this, this understanding that these different life ways, being outside, getting sun on our skin, eating something that sniffs like a species appropriate diet, it shockingly changes the, the, the life course, you know, the, the aging process. And that health span and lifespan end up meeting much better versus your health span tanking halfway through and then you have half of your life spent in, in abject misery and costing everybody around you a, a, a lot of money to just keep you going in that misery. Really, I have a, a, another one I, I have written down here and, and getting to the idea that let's try to make some you know, genetic or genetic conclusions or conclusions that people can take home and something, I think it was in one of your books or I wrote it, but you, you said, or rightfully said, that we're wired to move less and eat more, yet we're always being told to eat more or uh, move more and eat less. Yeah. Again, it, I'm going to bring it right back to the, the one time I, I shit on the idea. I, I made the, the assumption that consciousness was the problem. And somebody <laughs> got so mad at me, like somebody online who said, I've been a fan of yours, but the idea that consciousness, which is the biggest gift that humans can can ever get above any other animal, is somehow bad for us. I can't. They could not. They could not comprehend that. This is a fundamental feature of evolutionary biology. Fundamental. Yes. Trade offs. Yes. Everything is a trade off. Sure. And yeah. 
Yeah. Sorry so, to interrupt, but yeah. No, no, let's not interrupt. You go ahead with it because, yeah, move more, eat less, and then you're in a scenario where, like, you, it's so easy to relax. <laughs> it's so easy to relax. And I, I think that what consciousness did was, I mean, I, 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 I tend to break thought down to very chemical means. And I think to myself, you know, like, there's dopamine, which is pushing me to go out there and do things and, and get more and experience more. And then we have those here and now neural transmitters. You know, you have your epinephrine, norepinephrine, serotonin, cannabinoids, you know, these, all these mm -hmm. different things. And, and it's this balance between I want more of this drug, dopamine, versus I want more of these drugs, these, uh, these here and now neurotransmitters, uh, as they've been, they, they've been said. So, and the point now is, is that consciousness makes it so that you can access here and now neurotransmitters easily by doing things that are directly against what would be considered good for your species, mm -hmm. right? Like I can get neurotransmitters at almost any time, like television and, and, you know, I'm, I'm you know, you, you can say taking this away from your kid. It's like a, it's not the kid's fault. It's just that where people are preying on evolutionary based things in order to make you consume more. And, and, and I think you talked about this with this hyper palatability concept in one of your books. So yeah. that would be a brilliant thing to talk about right now. So what yeah. is it? Yeah, it's, uh, just as a really quick backup on this, uh, I have an article from, man, it was, it was years ago, but Unilever, the huge kind of food and pharmaceutical conglomerate, uh, they had an article that, that was posted kind of like a business, business week or something that they were putting $60 million into evolutionary biology research. And this was just kind of their, their, their broad thing. And what's interesting when you look at, so, so like Lay's potato chips, mm -hmm. their, their tagline is bet you can't eat just one. And like, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take that bet all day long. Oh, yeah, they're right. They're right. The food manufacturers are really well steeped in the neuroregulation of appetite. They have experts in, in the, you know, the evolutionary biology of, of appetite and, and neural regulation of, of everything that ties into that. So these folks that are manufacturing these foods, engineering these foods to be hyper palatable to, to bypass the normal off switch that tells us we've, we've had enough. These people are devoting huge amounts of money into this notion of evolutionary biology to better inform what they're doing. In standard medical circles, suggesting that evolutionary biology should, it, it doesn't give us answers, but it gives us a great starting place to start asking questions. And you're not even really allowed to bring up this topic of evolutionary biology within standard medical circles. Like it, it just doesn't exist. It's like, well, what drug are we talking about? Like that we, we talk about, we talk pharmaceuticals here. Like that's, that's all we do, but this, um, this, yet around the neuroregulation of appetite is really kind of where the the rubber hits the road with with human nutrition what's interesting is it, it dovetails really beautifully into what the most nutrient dense foods are protein scent tends to be disproportionately uh, satiating for folks we hit we tend to eat to a protein minimum there's a, a concept called the protein leverage hypothesis that all organisms eat to a protein minimum. This is whether they're a grazing animal, an omnivore, a carnivore. But what's interesting is in general, protein rich foods tend to come with a disproportionate amount of nutrition. 
And so the thought there is that if the brain can sense how much protein it's gotten, then it can by extension know that it's gotten all the, comparatively all the nutrition it needs. And that, that's kind of one feature on that. And the other feature is this idea of palate fatigue, where we tend to get bored of any given item. And there's good, good reasoning for this. If you ate all of one thing, say like blueberries or what have you, there can be great stuff in it, but there can also be toxicants in it too. Yes, yes. So we're trying to balance this intake, both of, of getting nutrient diversity and also um, minimizing these toxicants. So we have this, this tendency to, to uh, again, from optimum foraging strategy to eat more and move less. And then we also have a tendency to get bored of foods. And, and those are all good things to have in an ancestral environment. Those are disastrous features to have. Like, I barely go outside to shop anymore. We order most of our food to our door. It's mainly meat and veggies and, and like dark chocolate, but like, I don't have to do anything to eat now, you know? And if uh, I'm pretty careful with what food we have in the house, uh, I'm not much of a sweet guy. I'm more of a salty, crunchy guy. And then I've never met a corn chip that I wouldn't eat it and the rest of the bag that it that it came with. And particularly if I've got a little bit of uh, taco meat to eat it with because it's got, so I've got salty crunchy and then I've got some umami in the taco meat and oh man, a little bit of cheese. And, and so these um, really complex palate experiences that we face every single day, like the the fact that all of us are not fat, sick, diabetic, and broken is kind of a miracle, you know, and it, it really flies directly in the face of the of our basic evolutionary wiring. And for some people, there's a lot of pushback on that. And, it, it, and honestly, it, out of any of this stuff that I do, when I get some pushback there, it kind of saddens me because I, I think, and some people have, have reached out to me, like they've had disordered eating, anorexia, bulimia, diff, different problems. And when they understand this concept, they're like, oh, it's really not my fault. Like mm -hmm. I was just born into this environment with this set of genetics and these predilections and the environment is set up in such a way that I need a self-defense strategy around diet. And it's like, yes, you know, and, and uh, I think that that should be really liberating. It, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it at least starts you at a baseline that you're not dumb or weak or or anything to to not want to eat the whole thing of Hagen dazs and then eat another one and then have the corn chips like that is all totally reasonable. I think that maybe in evolution, evolutionary standpoint, people take what what they take what someone might say in a you know a discussion between you and me, and the discussion between you and you and me sounds very it's this or that like you're a human, this is how it is and this is how humans. And that sounds very cold and uncritical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it sounds like I would go to my patient and I might lecture to someone, you know, stop eating so much. And that sounds incredibly arrogant, but it depends who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to other clinicians, that's the point. Right. When you're talking to someone, I'm not placing blame. I, I feel sorry for people. We're, we're, we're born into a civilization which is completely mismatched to what it is that we are as a species. And I'm not the first to say that. Daniel Lieberman has said this. Mm -hmm. many, many a smarter person than I in this field has said this, that these mismatched diseases are the problem. And it's yep. not because someone's weak, it's because someone's human and other people are manipulating that. 
And if you, uh, you know, if you've read Yuval Harari and his idea yep. that people know us, people are starting to know you better than you know you. And, and, and it's scary and you have to learn yourself relatively quickly. And I remember in his third book that I read, I, I, I felt a, a very, you know, thing in my stomach that you got to get on this. I have three little kids. I have three mm -hmm. young kids and you have two, I believe. Two. And yep. you have to teach them about themselves before they're taught about themselves by others. Right. And now people, they would say, well, you're being crazy with this. But, and, and you said something about this, you know, this, these uh, people creating foods to be hyper palatable. And immediately when you hear someone say something like that, you go, oh, it's a conspiracy theorist. That's it. This guy thinks that, but that's, that's not what you're saying, right? That this actually does happen. And it happens because economics, like the fact of the matter is, is Lay's potato chips. I don't think they're evil, right? I don't think Lay's, but there's a guy with a mustache, like, right. right. <laughs> it's just, it's, there's thousands of people working on, you know, getting Lay's more money and, and, Oh, this tastes better. And and they might not be saying, I'm gonna trick someone into thinking it tastes better. They just might it tastes better. We sell more product. So I don't think you're claiming that there's any underlying government conspiracy here. No, it's by the way, for gov underlying government conspiracies to be true, you know how many people have to be in on that? Like, think about how many thousands of people you have to trust with this secret. And, and look at how many leaks that spring as it is, you know. Yes, yeah. 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 Not to say that conspiracies are not sometimes found to be true, but of course, when you're looking for conspiracy, you'll find them anywhere. And right. Put, put so, so this is maybe a, a helpful example of, yeah. of this kind of uh, playing to people's uh, predilections to improve economics for the for selling things. The way that a car door sounds when it closes. So they tinker and fiddle and tinker and fiddle when people close a car door particularly kind of higher end cars, there's almost this whoop kind of sound that, that they know when the person is checking out the car, thinking about whether or not they want to buy it, this has a, a shocking impact on whether or not they're going to purchase it. If it sounds kind of rattly, if there's like a little window wiggle or something like that, like it, it, it's a, a, it drops the likelihood of purchasing just dramatically. And so the auto industry is tinkered and fiddled, and, and not surprisingly, in the process of doing that, in general, they've actually made better cars. But they give you what you want. But they gave you what you want, and and so you know, if if folks think that it's nutty that that you know these companies would spend significant amounts of money to figure out how to make a food more appealing, then just think about cars. And it, it, again, this is an easy thing to you know, do a little searching and a little research on it. You know, how does the sound of a car door closing influence purchase behavior? It's very well documented. There's good, good stuff on it. The idea that on Instagram that you have to pull your thumb down and then you get this rotor. They could for sure come up with something where you just click it and bam, it, it reloads. But no, yep. no, they want you to pull on that lever somehow and see something spinning. These are, this not from a conspiratory frame of mind, just from a frame of mind where the economy dictates that things that you want, people will provide more of. But the evolutionary record dictates that just because you think you want it, it doesn't mean it's good for you. Right, right. And now we're in this fucked up scenario where, you know, you've heard the, the idea of the hedonic treadmill when it mm -hmm. comes to economics, that you, you know, every time you get to a place where you made this much money, 
how much money it's the next thing it's the right. next thing and you're driven on this treadmill and with these calories it's the same thing and i'll, I'll bring people attention to um i don't know if you've read uh, bill bryson's new book um it's like a stroll through the human body it's not no i don't think technical, so nope. but it's brilliant because every chapter just gives you food for thought with regards to this and one of them was on uh the idea of flavor and taste and when you see when i was in school they had the picture of the tongue and the picture of the tongue was segregated into this is salty and this is sweet and this is that and this is that and there was only like i don't know six or seven different types of flavors look into it now you said umami which is now a type of flavor there's new flavors there's an understanding that the tongue and, and flavor and tech is way more complicated than, than it was. Mm -hmm. And when we get that information, that's automatically going to bleed into people who make food, right? And people who make food are going to get more chemically savvy because what I got to before, and again, I don't want to get it. I don't want people to get into any philosophical arguments with me, but I can explain what you do via the chemicals. Like if I could see the chemicals that are being released at any given time, I could predict what you're going to do mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And this is a chemical game. And unfortunately, the people who are, are playing this game against us, so to speak, they're far more knowledgeable about these chemicals than we are. Um, and, 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 and they have no baggage. Maybe the most uh, difficult thing is they arrive on the scene with no baggage. You know, they're just like, how are we going to make this better? And who, you know, so they'll, they'll use interview and interrogation techniques that, that the military and law enforcement have used and, and, and use it at such a better level than what was used in those circles. And then the evolutionary biology story, where is it, there's such a legacy and kind of inertia to medicine that, it, you know, what, what is uh, the saying, it, it, uh, science advances one funeral at a time. And, and so that's a very slow, um, almost a religious doctrine type process by comparison to the market where people are just iterating, iterating, iterating to get that feedback of, of uh, you know, financial success. And so it, it forces that evolution at a really shocking pace. And we're, we're just getting our asses kicked on it, you know? And, and I, I, I don't know, I guess the one upside is I'm never gonna be wanting for, for job security. Like nobody's gonna solve this problem out from under me, but there, there are some other really concerning features, not the least of which is just the human suffering attached to all this stuff. True. And I yeah. mean, and these are, like you said, these are not, they're not necessarily nefarious. It's just a matter of the system that we're put in and how the system interacts with our choices. And, you know, I, I get this at my things. Like I'll, I'll hear someone argue about, for example, like I can't believe the basketball tickets are so much money. Like what, what, part, what part do you not understand? Like, is there no one in the seats? No, they're full. Okay, so the reason why they're that much money is because you told the person, I'm going to spend this, right? It's not like people don't set prices based on morals, right? right. Or very rarely. You set prices based on, I have a product. What, what are people willing to pay for this? And that's how you decide. I love getting those things. Your seminars are too expensive. They're exactly where they where they need to be because that's that's what it is right it's not right. like and and that's the same thing where it, i think we're at a crossroads now where we, this idea of evolutionary biology evolutionary medicine i don't know if you've heard gad sad speaking mm -hmm. um daniel lieberman one of my i mean just incredible uh researcher and we're coming to this point where we're starting to realize that 
an understanding of the, a fundamental understanding of the species is necessary in order to dictate what the species should do. Yeah. And I yeah. think we're also coming to the understanding, at least some of us are, that we are in fact a species. And because we're a species, we were driven via, you know, natural selective processes into our own realm. And now that we're starting to understand that this can be positive for people willing to look into it, but it can also be dangerous for people who are not willing to look into it. Right. And, and, and that's where I think we are here. Um, but anyway, you know what? I just realized I can talk to you forever. Uh, and I have a lot more things to talk about, um, but uh, we can't do this forever because it's just not the way the world works. But my kids are eventually going to come downstairs and interrupt this podcast, and I can hear them rumbling upstairs. Same dear. I, I, I've heard mine in there. I'm like, I wonder what they're doing now. Yeah, right? So <laughs> is, there, is there anything else uh, while, we, while we go, anything else that you want to, before we speak again, hopefully, that you want to draw people's attention to? I personally think I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I knew I was going to get high-level information, but what I think people don't see until you get someone in front of you and talk like a human is that the person behind the idea that they put forward, they also thought about this as well. Right. Right? right. Yeah. The number of people, like I put out a concept and they're like, yeah, well, this guy never considered this. And I don't want to be an asshole, but a lot of the times I want to type, I considered that 10 years ago when it was relevant. And now I'm 10 years ahead of you and you're telling me that I'm not thinking about it in your way. Right. Not to say that we're all geniuses, but clearly you have dedicated a lot of your time to try to answer a question, which yeah. we should be respected. I, I, I really like helping people. Like yeah. I, I, I derive a huge amount of satisfaction around that. And uh, I, I do have some, some anxiety around where the world is going. And, you know, just some of these, these economics of a, a imploding healthcare and food system that, that could leave a, a shit world for my kids. And yes, so yeah. I, I, you know, people will say, well, you just say this stuff because it sells books. And it's like, well, I, I could say a variety of things and sell books, you know, it, it's, I, you probably a, anything. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, I could, I could pick a bunch of different things. And it, again, it's not to say that I'm right, but I really try to get the, to the degree I've had success. It's been because I've been able to help people like why are FRC, you know, uh, certifications packed because it helps people and that, you, you know, people go and learn that. And then as coaches, they have an offering that doesn't exist anywhere. There's nothing like it. Like it's a, it's an iteration off of the, the mobility story that has, is just, in my opinion, like light years ahead of anything else that's out there. And it really disproportionately helps people. We've been incorporating it into our our jujitsu classes. And um, I, I just am sad that it wasn't available to us when we ran our, our CrossFit classes like that. That would have been amazing. But these these things, um, this is where like I, I have a, a fair amount of faith in in markets and and like trying to figure out what, what folks do need. Sure. And um, and also trying to, to, to do it in a way that I, I think is leading towards better health and better outcomes and ultimately liberating people like I don't, I don't want people dependent on me, I, I would really like them to be like, man, I got it. I'm, I'm on my own. I, I, I get the worldview. I can iterate and do this stuff on my own. And that to me, that would be like the, the greatest achievement I could ever get is take somebody that was in a health crisis 
move them out of that and then get them into this process where now they're the critical thinker, they're the creator and, and can go on and, and do their contribution to this story. Nah, you just want to sell books, bro. <laughs> I just want to sell books. I just want, I just want to sell books. I, want to sell books. <laughs> I don't give a shit about what I teach. You know, it's funny. It's a, it, this whole thing about, you know, FRC and you've been doing it. Again, I do appreciate that. And the funny thing is about what I do, and I think you'd feel the same, is that people often, without knowing, they, they accuse you of, of making shit up or they do the opposite and say, you think you, you're onto something, but this has been put, you know, other people have thought of it. And I keep telling people is that, if you come to my seminar and you leave thinking, I've never heard any of these, con I have no idea where he came up with this shit. That person's full of shit, right? I, the first thing I say at my seminars is everything I'm going to tell you, you could have learned, or you probably did learn in first year exercise physiology textbooks. And I'm just trying to shed light onto a misinterpretation mm -hmm. of what's being done. And I, we can go on for for days, but just taking stuff like weightlifting and I have, and I know a lot of people haven't, but if you look into the history of weightlifting and why people lift weights the way they do and why exercises are the way they are, they were not intended for human health and longevity. They were not, in, they were just trying to do something better. So for example, like a, a snatch, I mean, the number of times that I have to explain to someone that snatch is functional. If you can tell me why the fuck the snatch is functional. Right. right. It's not functional because it's the snatch. A Tur How many, did you get out of bed like a Turkish person this morning? I'm assuming not. So the idea that a Turkish get up is just universally, fundamentally functional and good. It's, it's not the case. Right. Right. And, and it's just, it's a funny thing about sharing ideas. I, my thing is that, you know, your body has to work before you do complex things with it and movement all is generated internally and it's executed internally with the purpose of changing the external environment. So right. if the first barrier you run into is internal constraints, then we should be worried about the internal constraints. So when someone goes, I can bench 500 pounds and I go, show me your shoulder. And they do something like, like that. I go, well, you're not going to bench 500 pounds for that much longer. Right. The tool you're using is broken. Right. And, and I, and I, I think that we're, we're on the same page with that, where it's, it's, we're not trying to say that this is how it is, but we are trying to say that the way people think it is maybe is not how it is. Right. There's more to consider. Um, and, and, and just like you can't tell someone, if I say, give me the five best foods to eat right now, I would assume you wouldn't do that for me. Just like when somebody says, I need five good exercises for my hip. I say, I've never met your fucking hip, sir. I have no idea what a good hip, what's a good stretch for the piriformis? Wow. I don't even think piriformis exist, right? And I'm not going to get into that, but the idea that, that <laughs> someone put a piriformis on, in your ass, not in your ass, but to the side of your ass purposefully to do something, if you understand anything about evolution, you realize that there is no the piriformis. It's just a bunch of shit that grew there for a purpose, right? I'm rambling, Rob. That's not rambling. That's uh, uh, the reason why I listen to your podcast before I listen to anybody else's now. So <laughs> I appreciate that very much, sir. Uh, and, and you know what? I, I really did enjoy this conversation and uh, it was a pleasure meeting you. Uh, I hope we can do this again because I have literally hours and, and pages and pages of more notes that I, I, I do want to go over. <laughs>
Well, so, let's uh, uh, let's get together at like a Henry Aiken's jujitsu seminar. Wouldn't and, that be fun? And uh, uh, then we can hang out and have some cocktails and do some training. So absolutely, yeah. I'll convince you of what I think if I take your back, and you can convince me of what you think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the beauty. Not to go too far down that. That is the beautiful thing of jujitsu. Yes. You've got all kinds of theory, and then it's like, how does it work? You know, it's the amazing empiricist uh, process. It's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's fantastic. So what's your uh, your um, Instagram handle? I don't remember. It's at Das Rob Wolf. At Das Rob Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So everyone's going to check that out. I hope, uh, again, it was a pleasure. I appreciate it. Um, and, and I'll see you soon, my friend. Awesome, Doc. Take care. You as well.